CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Philosophy for Our Times is brought to you in partnership with the New College of the Humanities a university-level college offering undergraduate and postgraduate degrees in the heart of London. NCH pride themselves on offering unprecedented access to a world-class academic faculty. Philosophy students at the college are taught by some of the foremost scholars in the field, and one-to-one tutorials create a personalised teaching experience. Choose your major and minor for a unique combined honours degree and study the NCH diploma to widen your appreciation of the world in ways you'd never thought of before. Go to nchlondon.ac.uk for more information. Think better. Think NCH. Hello and welcome to our 150th episode of Philosophy for Our Times. This week, I'd like to start by saying a huge thank you to all of our listeners, old and new, for tuning into the podcast over the last few years. Without you, we won't be able to keep producing it, so a huge thank you to everyone. We love bringing you this podcast for free, and we want to continue to do so for as long as possible. So it would mean a lot if you could head over now to iTunes and give us a review or rating so we can keep reaching more people. With 150 episodes, we also now have an extensive bank of big ideas for you to dive into. From porn to post-truth, consciousness to quantum, and me too to materialism, Make sure you subscribe to never miss any of these episodes and get downloading. Don't forget, you can also come meet us at our live debates and events at How The Light Gets In Festival, the world's largest music and philosophy festival. So head over to howthelightgetsin.org for more details. From Milton's Paradise Lost to Bad Boys and Femme Fatale, We are seduced by the dark and dangerous. This week, our speakers address the lure of evil. Why does the devil have the best tunes? Have we sanitized the good and made it vacuous? Why then is danger and denial so exciting? Is it somehow an essential part of being alive? Do we need it to break out of the routine and control of daily life? Can we imagine a world where the good was exciting, dramatic and fun? Or is our fascination with evil more to do with our idea of good? Are we holding on to an impossible puritanical definition of goodness? And could we redefine it to make it exciting once again? To discuss these questions, we have theologian John Milbank, moral philosopher Christopher Hamilton, and professor of continental philosophy, Patricia McCormack. We'd love to hear what you thought of this episode, so please do get in touch and tweet us at IITV tell anyone you know that might be interested. Back now to Danielle Sands, who hosts this week's episode. Have we turned the idea of goodness into something empty and lifeless? And Chris, I think we'll turn to you first. The first thing I would say with respect to thinking about um, good and evil and our view of them is that it seems to me perfectly manifest that human beings have a nature and it's that their part of their nature is to be aggressive. If you imagined coming to a planet uh, with a 
species uh, like ours, and you'd never been to that planet before, and you just watched how people, how those creatures behaved and the history, and you saw human history, which, as the great German philosopher Hegel said, was a, is a slaughter bench. I think what you would see is that um, it's, it is essentially that. It's one bloodbath after another. This isn't to deny, of course, that there are good things that human beings have done, some of them absolutely magnificent, morally speaking, and in the arts and so on. But it seems to me completely clear that the explanation for uh, human history, being as it is, is indeed that human beings are by nature aggressive creatures. We're also highly intelligent. Um, that's to say we're very, very good at survival, but pretty much bad at everything else, including uh, controlling ourselves. And we are, of course, we have used our intelligence to outstrip by a long way our instinctual capacities to restrain ourselves. We, in other words, to put it more simply, we have weapons with which we can um, kill each other. So one aspect of, I think, the problem that we have in thinking about good is that we do have a very primal fascination towards violence and aggression, and I think we're largely in denial about that. I think that particularly in modernity in the modern West, we have in the in the sanitized our understanding of uh, the good. So that's the first point I make. The second point I would make is that if we are thinking about the notion of the good, and we're thinking about that particularly, of course, in a moral context, I take it in this debate, because, of course, there are plenty of things that might be good that we can fully accept. I mean, questions of, uh, uh, you know, exciting ways of life, but they might be morally suspect. So if we're restricting ourselves to the idea of the morally good, then it seems to me the other thing we have to bear in mind is that we have a deeply fragmented notion of what that is. We have that fragmented notion for a variety of reasons. One is the, that we are the inheritors in particular of, of course, Greek, but also Christian, Judeo-Christian culture, which themselves are highly complex in their uh, uh, view of the good. But we can put that very, very simply by saying that we have notions of the morally good which are in conflict with each other. I mean, take classically the relationship, say, between mercy and justice. We know that we can see these in particular cases as being morally good. It can be morally good to forgive, to exercise mercy, and so on. Uh, but we can also see that in some way that that is in conflict with the notion of justice, with what somebody deserves as a result of uh, what he or she has done. So one problem we have, I think, also in thinking about the, the notion of the good is this fragmented uh, aspect to it. The third thing that I think is difficult is that we have inherited, particularly from Christianity, or at least some strands of Christianity, or perhaps more directly from the life of Jesus, an idea of the good as being absolutely pure. And that seems to me, uh, in one way, a wholly mistaken idea, and in another way, quite correct. The way in which I think it's mistaken is that uh, it seems to me that the, to put it in these terms, the virtues and vices are bound up with each other. The best example of this is love. Any kind of love, romantic love, but love of friendship, also the love that people have for their parents or their children and so on, or people, the love that people have for a country, or maybe even for a, a, a vocation, is partly underwritten by deeply egotistical drives. You know, the, the parents who are proud of their children at the school pantomime, these are my kids, and look at my kids, how lovely they are. Now, 
I've sometimes said this to audiences who then think I'm being cynical. I'm not being cynical at all. I think it's perfectly normal. I think it's perfectly natural that we have this egotistical attachment to those who are close to us, who are dear to us. But it is nonetheless an egotistical attachment. It's about me and about my life and what revolves around me. And it seems to me that we are badly in denial about that because we conceptualize the good as being pure. We have the idea that you could be wholly virtuous without any kind of... Uh, as it were, the vices underwriting uh, the virtues. And it seems to me that um, philosophers such as Nietzsche are quite right, which is that they, if you were to rid the human soul of the vices, you would rid it at the same time of the virtues, and that we're very dishonest about that. However, so, so at one level, I think the idea of, of the good as absolutely pure is mistaken. On the other hand, I think there is something in the idea but, and it is an idea we do occasionally in our lives, very rarely, or looking at the lives of other people, get a sense of the possibility of a kind of life which is absolutely lived in, in pure goodness, a kind of purity, uh, in a way a certain kind of innocence, but not an innocence that doesn't know about the ways of the world. And, but uh, my view is, and my view is that in the Western tradition we uh, have attached that notion very, very strongly to the life of Jesus, which probably in certain ways does express that, for example, in his willingness to go on to go to the cross, uh, but that it's not a form of goodness can that can actually be embodied in human life. Indeed, I agree with the German philosopher Hannah Arendt that that kind of goodness is destructive of um, the political realm and destructive of human plurality, so that we have an intimation of a certain kind of moral goodness, that, but it cannot be embodied in our lives. Thanks. Over to you, John. Do you think we've sanitised the good? Uh, yeah, absolutely. And I think we're profoundly under the delusion that, that the good is boring. Um, I think one of the reasons for that is we think of the good as something primarily um, that we have to do. But of course, everything that fully exists is good, like today. And uh, uh, the goodness is first experienced in that way, um, I think, as a gift. And the second thing is we think of goodness in terms of rules and the habitual and the predictable, but we should by now have learned from Henri Bergson that it's exactly the opposite way round, that everything merely identically repeated and merely habitual is in fact bad, is in fact evil. The real good is always original, always surprising, always apt to the arising situation Otherwise, it just isn't good at all. So we have a completely false idea um, about the good. I think the other thing is that in, in our life today, where we're no longer mainly agricultural laborers or craftsmen, we need endless titillation and diversion. So we've forgotten the fundamental good of absorption. It's absorption that really makes us happy. Absorption in agriculture, in gardening, in craft, in dancing, in friendship, in sex. Those are the things that really make us happy. And there's very little amounts of kind of absorption going on in the modern world. There's very little absorption on offer. It's interesting that you can much more read a poem again and again or listen to a symphony again and again than you can kind of watch a film again and again or even read a novel or even Shakespeare again and again. Music, which is kind of nearer to sort of peace and good, is more something, I think, that you can do again and again. I think that the further illusion that we're, we're under is a failure to read St. Paul properly, who'd already said everything that Nietzsche said only 
infinitely more radically because Paul saw the, the link between law and transgression. So we only think the game of transgression is fun because we're always affirming the law. And we shouldn't be affirming the law because, okay, we need the law, we need laws, but they're merely reactive against, they're trying to contain um, an already existing threat. This isn't the original creative good. This is charity that Paul is trying to get us back to. So the game of law and transgression, that binary game, is, is exactly something that we need to escape. So all the apparently you know, transgressive hero, heroes and heroines are far too conservative. You know, that, that, that's the, obviously, I think, um, you know, the real problem. But then one could say, okay, so we, do we need to be sort of hippies and Buddhists? Do we need to just sort of make love and not war? Do we need to get on totally with absorption? Well, actually, no, that would be premature because we don't quite know the key to that. There really is injustice and evil um, in, in, in the world we're mysteriously dominated by that, and we have to fight that. And that's more, if you like, our Western classical and, and Christian legacy, you know, summed up really in the word chivalry, so, so that we're right to be excited by the counterplot. We should be suspicious about mere excitement of plots, but we should embrace the fact that we find the counterplot of fighting against evil exciting. So I don't know quite how to sort this out. On the one hand, there's absorption. On the other hand, there's the real adventure that you should be excited about of fighting um, evil, because we're not yet back in paradise. We will be one day, but not yet. And so for now, that sense of the adventure of fighting evil is, is oddly an, an important clue to the eschatological absorption that we haven't yet achieved. Thanks. Um, Patricia, have we made good lifeless? Have we emptied it out? My preliminary response to that question would be, good for whom? Um, and this leads to a much larger, uh, a, a double bind, I think. And the, the, the first part of the double bind is that good and evil have been unnecessarily bifurcated because what is good for one is not good for another and what is considered evil for one is not considered evil for another. And so one person's fallen angel and rebel is another person's hero. Um, but more importantly than that is the uh, shift or the tendency um, to go from a social ordering and a, a very human signifying system that arbitrarily distributes good and evil based on what benefits those in power more than what benefits the oppressed to a situation of from morality to ethics where it's more about a very individuated relationship between any instant and any interaction, any interrelationality, considering that we all do exist in an assemblage, in a, in a mesh of relations, that um, our actions will always have unpredictable effects on others. So the question is not so much evaluating overarching paradigms of, is this behaviour good, is this behaviour evil, but, uh, both as a practice, but also as an evaluative uh, occupation. Rather saying, is this situation Am I expressing intensities that will open up the liberty of the other? Are my affects going to be imposing power as a form of oppression? Or are my actions going to be commingling with the other to create a feeling of joy? And joy is, again, it's not qualified, it's not happiness, but it is an openness to 
further metamorphosis, further development, rather than an oppression. So for me, I think the moral question is very different to the ethical actualization, and I also think that the semi-subjectivity of the concept of good and evil is something that masquerades behind this larger human question where humans are all perceived to be a certain kind of human and perceived to have certain kind of interests that are not logical, not natural, but are largely judiciary and self-serving. Thanks, Patricia. I think so we've had some quite different ideas of what goodness is and how we need to change our ways of thinking about it. But maybe we should turn to think about evil. So our first theme is, why are we drawn to things which are dark and dangerous? Chris, perhaps you'd like to well, well, as I said earlier, I mean, I think that... Um, <clears throat> I mean, in a word, uh, the answer is that it's exciting. Uh, uh, that's not to say, of course... I mean, that doesn't have any particular implication that that which is good is not exciting. I think it can be, and I'm, I'm in agreement with much of what John said about the idea of absorption or a certain kind of mindfulness or a a, a, as a form of goodness. But I think it's... I think that human beings are naturally attracted to that which is exciting, and they are so because they're creatures who are d profoundly distracted, distracted from themselves, or as T.S. Eliot has it, distracted from distraction by distraction. And I think, I think human beings are profoundly distracted, restless, uneasy creatures, um, <coughs> which is, uh, uh, like pretty much everything in human life, has, has both a positive and a negative side. The positive side is that it's the thing that keeps us driving forward, it's the thing that keeps us I imaginative and inventive, but it's also the thing that can get easily out of control. And I think that evil and violence has a, attaches itself readily to that part of, of the human soul, that restless side that, that seeks uh, excitement and engagement and seeks loss of self. Um, and in losing ourselves, you know, there's a great line from Samuel Johnson, um, <coughs> the 18th century man of letters, who says, uh, he who makes a beast of himself forgets the pain of being a man. Um, obviously, that's put very much in terms of 18th century English, but it's the idea that being a human being is a tremendous burden. It's a burden to think about who one is. It's a burden to live with this kind of chattering mind uh, that's constantly distracted. And the idea of violence or the idea of evil, the, the excitement of, of these things, is precisely the sense of, as it were, an emptying of the self in a, uh, in a way that um, releases one from oneself. And this is, this is one reason why the great Jewish almost Catholic uh, uh, thinker Simone Weil, um, who's not terribly well known in this country, though she died here in, in 1943, said that in th there are two limits to the will. One limit is just material objects. I just can't go through them. They just stop my will. The other is human beings. But human beings limit my will not because of what they are physically. After all, you might be much physically weaker than I am, and I could just push you over if I wanted to. It's rather the something about you, she would say, as, as sacred. There may be other ways of capturing that thought. But there's something about you that limits my will. But in those moments of aggression or violence, we see this particularly in war, uh, that, uh, that uh, uh, evil and the, it becomes exciting because um, suddenly that limit is no longer there and I'm released into being able to do what I want to do. And so it seems to me that evil aggression, violence, these have a, an intoxicating quality 
because of the kinds of creatures that we are. And again, I think we're dishonest with ourselves about that because I don't think there's much we can do about it unless we're actually honest about where this comes from in the, in the human soul. Thanks. John, I wonder whether you want to join in here. Would you, would you agree with this characterization um, of us? You know, I, 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 thi I think I, I'd agree up to a point. And I, th I think you would probably sort of also agree that, that the trouble with the, this kind of intoxication, you know, the danger of evil is that, is that it, it does seem superficially attractive, but tends to pall after a while. Absolutely. It, yep. it, it becomes, in fact, after a while, simply boring yep. and, and, and kind of routinized. And I think there's also the question of sort of suddenly there are no limits. But, you know, if there, if there are genuinely no limits, um, you know, why is it this game of transgression? This is, this is why I'm wanting to raise this issue about the, you know, the secret complicity with law. But I do think there's another dimension to this that I haven't mentioned so far. You know, why, why are we attracted by kind of outlaws and pirates and Robin Hood and so forth? And, and, you know, we have the phrase honour amongst thieves. And I think this is because really and truly, sometimes it, it, in, a, in a very kind of rigid, um, impersonal kind of habit-bound um, culture where there is a real suppression of, of certain human qualities, they, they then exist sort of more in, in these enclaves. You know, they, presumably this is behind some phenomena like terrorism and so on, that, that you're, you, you know, there's this sense of kind of unlimited brotherhood. Uh, and, and so in that sense, it's almost a sense of a kind of trapped virtue um, and we need to understand why that that can be attractive and it you know just to condemn is wrong we need to realize it is witness to something missing i think in our usual understanding of, of what of what what is life and we need to we need more absorption both with things and 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 with other people may i throw may i just throw yeah. very briefly just to say I, I agree entirely with that and i think one one way of putting it is is the way that <coughs> theodore adorno the 20th century mm -hmm. german philosopher we live we live in the administered society yeah and so what becomes attractive is the idea of living out uh, as it were on the other side of the the, yes. the margin so that we mm. we constantly tell ourselves we're satisfied living in this highly bourgeois regulated mm. ordered administered world but in fact we know deep down that there are deep mm -hmm. forces of the self that aren't, aren't being mm -hmm. uh, responded to. And I think the other thing is the thing about the boringness of evil. W.H. Uh, Auden has a, a marvellous passage in one of his essays mm -hmm. where he says, those who are in hell know they're in hell and they know the gates of hell are open. But they're frightened of walking out because walking out would involve a change of their life. They'd have to admit their own uh, mistake, mm -hmm. but they actually they really want to go out. And that mm -hmm. sense that there's a kind of boringness about the repetitive, I think, is absolutely right. And again, we don't, we don't. F I mean, it's one reason I think, in fact, that there's no people are generally in agreement that, for example, uh, fascist Nazi fascism couldn't produce any mm -hmm. great art because there's something so sterile about that world <coughs> in its evil. But it's, it's a bit like the mafia, the way it offers another kind of, yeah. a, another kind of order. Mm. The more, it's sinister, but it's much more interpersonal. Mm. Patricia, <coughs> perhaps you'd like to come in there. Is, um, is evil inherently boring? Well, I think that for many people <coughs> who talk about good and evil and about transgression and about this whole idea of repetition and boredom, it's because they've always had access to the most privileged positions of power and they have never had to be demonised or fight against 
what they consider inherently good that is not really good for the planet and is not really good for everyone, but is primarily good for a very, very niche form of the human. And so I think all of these grand narratives about selfhood and personhood and humankind are struggles against tedium and inner conflict that uh, many people haven't had the luxury. I think there's a sense of luxuriating in one's own power that is a little privileged and kind of nauseating. Because for, for, for many people and many, you know, sort of movements that have been demonised, they have been demonised because of their disobedience, not because they seek to be evil, but being designated as evil is because they are disobedient, but they are also necessary. So some of the movements that uh, we now consider great and wonderful were initially designated as evil, and yet we would today call them beneficial and good. And so I think that um, we need to take a great deal of care in talking about personhood, human subjectivity, and what we mean by good and evil um, as a polyvocal collective of very different individuals, rather than speaking from a neutral position that I think is mythological and self-serving. Do you want to hear more from the world's leading thinkers? If the answer to that question is yes, subscribe to IAI.TV for unlimited access to thousands of debates, talks, articles, academy courses and live events. Are you bored of the surface level news, politics, sports and entertainment coverage on your newsfeed? Go deeper, get the philosophy behind the news and get the latest big ideas from the world's leading thinkers on subjects at the core of the human condition, life, the universe and everything in between. It's free for the first month, and there's no commitment to pay, so subscribe now to understand the world beyond the surface level. Thank you. I mean, this brings us back to our, our second theme, which is, again, this, this topic of the good, and whether we need to rethink what goodness is if we're able to move forward. I mean, maybe, John, you can speak well, to something I, Patricia was saying. I think Patricia was sort of earlier invoking a slightly sort of Spinozistic Deleuzean picture, and, and some of that I would want to go along with, actually, that, the, you know, the, the sense of um, it, it, it is a matter of uh, absorbing what, what is positive, you know, that building up your, your real being uh, 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 and strength and not being sucked down by what Spinoza called the sad passions. But, but I think that in the end, you can only do that with harmony with other human beings and indeed with all the other creatures on, on the planet. And I, I think there's a, there's a sense that at least some of what Spinoza is saying is important for, for getting to a more ontological sense of, of goodness, a less kind of moralistic sense of goodness that is, that is actually a false one. So are we mistaken mm. in thinking that being good is being disciplined, being good is about having restrictions and keeping within them? Well, when, no, in a sense that the good is about having good habits. And the, the strange thing is that the capacity to be original, to repeat differently and so on, does require discipline. It requires you not simply to be the victim of, of, of the passive that Spinoza is talking about, but to be able actively to absorb outside influences. So there's a strange alliance between discipline and play, isn't there? You know, you can't play football properly without discipline. Ironically, you can't be playful enough without discipline. Well, 
well, okay, I mean, I, I think it's completely clear that if we're talking about moral goodness or ethical good, I mean, one could distinguish these, and philosophers sometimes do, but let's not worry about that. It seems to me that discipline is inevitably part of that for a perfectly good reason, which is that if I'm to respect another person or I'm to respect the obligations I have, and they needn't be terribly grand obligations, they can just be the obligations I have, for example, to turn up at the time agreed to do my teaching at college or the obligation to mark my students' essays uh, and so on and so forth. Um, that, that requires discipline, that requires me to hold in check something I might want to do otherwise. Um, you know, I might not simply want to mark those essays, but I've agreed to do it and that's what I do. So I think, I think from that point of view, morality unquestionably involves the notion of discipline. It involves the notion of the limits of the will, as I said earlier, and it involves these notions of obligation and, and very old-fashioned notion, but the notion of duty, which I think I is there. Um, but <coughs> it doesn't follow from that, of course, as I intimated earlier, that all goodness is moral goodness. Far from it. And part of the problem is that we can perfectly well think that there are lives which are excellent that might be morally uh, suspect in various ways. I mean, one of the facts, it seems, of, of uh, human existence, for example, is that most of the great creators of the greatest works of art, music, literature, and so on, they've been pretty shabby people, often very unpleasant people. And that's a certain price that we're willing to pay, at least at times, for the things that they produce. And it seems to me that that's part of our difficulty. Our difficulty is that we can see certain kinds of lives as excellent, but at the same time morally suspect. And I, my own view is that we live in an age in which we are too ready to suppose that morality must triumph over those other forms of, of excellence. I mean, this, this is a problem that goes right back to Aristotle, because in Aristotle's ethics, there's the question about the virtuous life. But in fact, the word that we're translating from the Greek as, as virtuous is just, in fact, excellent. And then, when, then what Aristotle says is, this, what's the excellent life for a human being? And it turns out that it's not quite the same as anything that we in modernity as inheritors of Christianity would think. So part of the problem is a, a tremendous complexity in our notion of what counts as a, a good life. And we can be torn between the morally good and, and, and good in, or, and, uh, uh, and, and excellent in various other ways. I mean, who gets to decide what good is? Is it connected with power in some way? Well, in, in part, of course, it's connected with power, but it's not only connected with power. If you thought that it were connected only with power, then it would simply be reduced to that, and that would be a very, in my view, an unhelpfully reductive view. I mean, there's, there's no question that... Um, certain things, uh, as was said earlier, certain things have been demonized, old movements have been demonized as, as evil, um, and we've come later to think that that's not the case. But it's also the case that there have been things that we've demonized as evil, and that they're pretty sure. I mean, I mentioned the Nazi fascism, for example, and I, for one, will be willing to say that that was, from beginning to end, an evil movement. And I don't think that's an expression of any kind of I, I mean, I'm not sure how far the notion of neutrality goes in, in philosophy but I, or in thinking about life, but I certainly don't think that it's an expression of power. I think it's a recognition of what was there and the, the reality. But it's n I mean, the question who gets to decide is, is, in, is in a way too simplistic. It's rather that it's just part of the conversation of humanity and, and, and human beings or particular local cultures in which they're trying to work things out. And it's not so much that any one particular person decides. These things gradually emerge, sometimes for the better, sometimes for the worse. 
Um, sometimes we make gargantuan errors and mistakes. Sometimes we get things more or less right, and with hindsight we can see that. But it's not really, it, it's much, much more complex than the relations of power, though of course they're in there, I think, in, in some way, inevitably. Patricia, perhaps you'd like to respond to that. Do you think that, obviously, goodness is tangled up with relations of power, but do you think we can think good outside those relations? Well, as I said earlier, I think that good is both retrospectively evaluated and also imposed as a sort of ambition for ethical openness. Um, so it sort of comes down to a a very anthropocentric signifying system where things are evaluated rather than kind of unthinking, unmaking, opening up. Um, because I, I, I do, you know, wonder about the use, you know, to be done with the judgment of God, as Arto would say. I think that we can look at the ability of another to have the manifestation of novelty in their existence and we can say well I did everything in my capacity to allow that openness to exist or we can say I did something that limited that capacity for that other to experience novel situations and novel encounters and you know historically evil has also been associated with novelty I think now evil especially with the whole edgelord rubbish evil is associated with being a bit edgy because people don't want to be inclusive of diversity. But I think that ultimately, when we talk about good and evil, we are talking about, yes, a complex understanding of power, but power as an, an unanswered function. So power as, so I think that the question has to be, when we enunciate something as being good or evil, what is the purposefulness of that rather than what are we doing to actively seek a good, which sort of is a different kind of thing because it's not evaluative and it's not retrospective. It's hopeful and it's, you know, ambitious in the face of impossibility. And so I think that even in that sense, we're looking at good being a thing that's retrospective and good being a hoped for opening up, which, you know, may work out badly, but we won't know. I mean, you mentioned this idea of um, trying to think about good non-anthropocentrically. Mm. What, what does that mean? I mean, it, if we think about morality as a kind of structure that humans have imposed so on I would, the world, I would, what I would, would um, pick up from Michel Serre's use of grace, that the, the, the human devastation of the world would be well to stop aligning good with action and bad with passivity or apathy. Um, and I think that you know, binary thinking in general is problematic, but grace is lovely because it is the goodness in stepping aside. And in modern forms of activism, goodness can often come um, as acts of boycott, um, but historically, goodness has come through a sense of hoped for grace, where we simply allow the other to be without demanding knowledge of the other, without demanding the other come up to our anthropocentric level of equivalence. So for me, maybe there, there is a deep unknowability in good that is attractive because it's difficult, but also demands a very artistic perception of practice. Um, and so in that sense, I think it's very sexy because it's mystical, you know, it verges on mystical. So, yeah. Thank you. I mean, that 
conveniently brings us to our final theme, which is what can we do to make good more exciting or sexy, as you said? Before. Well, if anyone stood in front of Benini's St. Teresa, they know that good can be hella <laughs> sexy. Um, <laughs> but I think imagination and artistic practices of activism and um, really trying to not impose judgment before the fact is both ethically open and possibly a way of understanding good as novel and unknowable. So not prescriptive. Yeah, rather than, you know, because really when you think about it, I think that the, 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 the concept of violence is tedious because it's repetitive is because it was once unknown and unknowable, but now we know it to exhaustion, so it's become boring. So this, you know, this cessation of repetition is very important or this, you know, cultivation of difference within repetition is very important. And so a celebration of mystic unknowability, I think, um, it converges good and neat. Well, say it converges light and dark. It's seeing in the dark and it's being blinded by light rather than good and evil as being these prescriptive, um, preformed. Because ultimately we can only reflect on things being good and evil and we have to just hope that we are seeking. John. Yeah, I, I think sort of quite a, bit of, quite a bit of that is right and fits what, with what I've already said about, about being good, being absorption, it being about habits of non-identical repetition and more a matter of trying to inculcate um, virtues which, which are at once, um, you know, generalisable roles and yet always incredibly particular. I mean, I think the difficulty comes, you know, when you talk simply about sort of opening up and giving up space and so on, that whether we're talking about amongst people or amongst uh, the, those other agents that are animals and plants and so on, the question is, you know, how do we all fit in together? How do we, you know, share, that, share this planet? How are we going to interact? And at that point, it, it seems absolutely the language of grace is right. But, uh, you know, if, if it's not merely a kind of Protestant imputed grace, if, it, if it's a kind of more lived um, grace, you know, uh, informing our lives, then, then it does seem to have an aesthetic aspect, which I think um, gets onto your terrain. And I think it's interesting that... It's very difficult in the end to sort of separate the good and the aesthetic. That's why philosophers like Shaftesbury have, have talked so much in aesthetic terms um, about goodness. And, and similarly, you know, when we're thinking about works of art, you know, the invocation, the way they provoke in us, you know, good, peaceful desires and so on. And yet, at the same time, I think you've got, you can't make that too easy, you know, and there's, we're, we're not at the let yet at the perfect unity of, of, of the aesthetic and the good, you know, the perfect convertibility of the transcendentals as scholastics would have understood it and David Bentley Hart has a very very good essay on, on all this um, you know about the fascination of wickedness why is Milton Satan attractive why is Don Juan um, attractive and, and there's a certain sense here that we you know we cannot deny um, a certain vi aesthetic vitality you know even though it's as it were trapped and it, it sort of tells us maybe that there's something we need that we haven't fully integrated yet, you know. And, um, I w you know, I wouldn't want to go too far down your road about the romantic artist. I think mm. we need to ask how far that is, to some degree, a kind of modern phenomenon. But at the same time, you know, as, as Charles Peggy says, you know, it's very few people who manage to be both 
great makers and philosophers and great actors. And we need to get away from the idea of a, you know, a morality that everybody needs to do everything or that the, the, the same good is, is good for some people. There are some daring things that are good for some people to do and very bad for other people to do. That's a perfectly sound moral judgment. And, you know, the fact that some people have to focus on, on, on making and, and so on is something that we, we have to uh, understand. And, you know, there are sort of rival deficiencies. And, and in a sense, all that needs integrating um, at a much more social level. And I think our problem is that uh, because we, we just pursue kind of money and... Um, you know, formal rules are kind of a, we despair of harmonising differences, that none of this works in, in the way our society is set up at the moment. So we shouldn't think about good universally, we have to think about it on an individual level? Or? Well, no, both things are true, because, because um, yeah, it, it, the more you think of the good in a platonic way as something transcendent, the more, you, the less you think of it in this boring modern Kantian way as being about a set of merely fixed rules, the more you understand that it can vary um, in, in individuals and that, um, you, you know, the point about being good, as Kikau says, in a sense it is becoming subjective. But, 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 but he also relates that very powerfully to social roles, like marriage, for, for, for example. So, so that you, you're doing that in an interrelational way. But it, it, it's kind of shockingly non-bland and non-moralistic compared to the way that we're usually thinking about it, I think. Thank you. Uh, Christopher, how, how can we make good exciting? Well, um, well I think... Or should we even try? Well, should we even try? Well, let's think about whether... <laughs> um, I mean, I think the I mean, one of the things that John is saying there with which I agree is the distinction between, let's say, morality and moralism. And one of the things, one of the things I think that's characteristic of the modern age is, th uh, and it's a point actually that Nietzsche makes, which is with the decline of, um, the decline of religious faith or the decline of uh, established religions, morality f steps in to fill the gap. So in my view, part of the, the problem we have in thinking about the interestingness, if, that, if that's uh, the right way to put it, of, e of good, is um, that we have a moralized conception of morality. Um, and we would do well to rid ourselves of that. And some of the things I think that um, John has been saying about um, the varieties of goodness, including the varieties of moral goodness in individuals, is uh, something that we would do well to, to think about. I think the other aspect of it, and it's something I've not mentioned, but um, I think is tremendously important, is that um, we overlook, in general in our lives, how exposed they are to radical contingency to the fact that m so much of what happens to us is just chance, fluke, good and bad luck. And one aspect of that is the fact that we are born here now, talking about the people here in this audience and, of course, myself, we're born in a world uh, which is a, w a world largely of plenty. And my view is that a great deal of the things that, or a great deal of our moral goodness, a great deal of our sense that we are morally good or morally better than people in the past, doesn't come from a genuine feature of what we are or our soul or our self, but comes rather from the fact that we are held in place by 
a particular kind of social world which makes a certain kind of thing possible for us, a certain kind of way of living. To put it in the crudest terms, if I've got nothing and you've got a lot, I've got a, a real incentive to take from you because I've, not no I've got nothing to lose in the first place. If, however, we live in a world of plenty where uh, there's a certain kind of equilibrium of goods, then, of course, we have less th there's less investment in aggressing against each other. And, of course, one of the things that we've done, unfortunately, is to export that conflict here, which exists much less between us, for example, in this audience, export this to a distinction between North and South, so that a great deal of our problems, our economic and, and social problems, are exported, essentially, in the form of problems about climate and food uh, supply and so on, to uh, more impoverished nations. So this seems to me an extremely important thing to think about when we're thinking about good and how, how interesting it is is the way in which we shouldn't overestimate our own capacities, the way in which we should see how we're held in place. And this seems to me a line of, a line of thought that comes particularly strongly uh, through um, Hannah Arendt's work on the banality of evil. You know, the famous case of Eichmann, who was one of the, Adolf Eichmann, who was one of the architects of the deportation of the Jews to the camps in the East, and was put on trial eventually in, in Jerusalem. And he was what she called a desk murderer, because he simply signed pieces of paper to organize the transportation of the Jews, not thinking about what he was actually, that this actually meant you know, millions of deaths. And her point was, in talking about the banality of evil, is that in another epoch he would have just been a bureaucrat. Perhaps he would have been me, doing my bureaucratic things at the university, filling in the reforms, applying for you know, grants and whatever it might be, marking essays. And the consequence of that is that the radical contingency of the goodness that we, that we each of us have, is it, it's not a thing, as it were, that's my possession. It is in a way, and I think in the kind of vocabulary that John would use, it is in a way a kind of gift. It's chance. And we should remember that, because otherwise we become complacent about our own capacities and about what could happen tomorrow if suddenly there were no food or no water or or whatever. Um, we have run out of time. Thank you so much for coming. Uh, please join me in thanking our speakers. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Philosophy for Our Times and for your continued support throughout the years. This podcast was brought to you by the Institute of Art and Ideas. It was hosted by me, Anna Carey, and our guests this week were John Milbank, Christopher Hamilton and Patricia McCormack. As I said, we'd love it if you could let us know what you thought of this episode by leaving a review and rating on iTunes so we can reach more people. Subscribe today and of course tune in next week for more debates and talks from the world's leading thinkers on today's biggest ideas.